Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for people sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to quash human biases that prevent you to grow and make marketing great again. My guest today is the founder of the marketing agency, Hybrancy. He's the host of the show, Champagne Strategy as well, where he deconstructs world-class strategies, growth marketing uh, with a sprinkle of champagne. And he's going to explain us why is champagne so important to him in his life. John James, welcome aboard. Very nice to be here. Thanks very much. So one thing you believe in is, is the fact that the largest thing that prevents businesses to grow are people, humans, right? Yeah, it's kind of ironic. I mean, um, you know, humans buy products and create the revenue, but also, in my experience anyway, uh, the thing that prevents growth is is the humans that operate these companies. So, um, and some of the human biases that that go part and parcel with with running a company. So that's the thing that I come into trouble with, and that's the thing that I try and solve. So tell me more about this. What are the like? We're going to talk about biases. Are we going to talk about biases from? An internal perspective, folks inside businesses, are we going to talk about biases from outside, like consumers and, and whatnot, or both? I'm actually going to go mostly on internal perspective. So as a marketer um, or aspiring marketer, I think it's quite relevant. And also, if you're working in other departments within a business, um, how to view marketers in the right way and maybe why they're acting in certain ways. Um, I think it's it's good for no matter what position you're in in your working life to, to know about some of these biases. All right, so let's go. Yeah, What's so the first one? Look, um, let's just like set the context a bit here because um, I specialize in marketing that's related to revenue generation, right? So I think sometimes marketers get a bad rap because that is one of the, the hardest things that they can do is, is tie their actions back to revenue. So I need to go really deep into some areas and cover a lot of different disciplines within marketing. So when you talk to me about what I should talk to on the show, that's what I want to talk about. Um, because I think biases really play into this, this problem that we have. Um, so I suppose, let's, uh, let's define a couple of things first. The question I get asked the most is like, you know, what's the secret to growth? I'm sure you might get that as well in your life. So what's the secret to marketing? What's the secret to growth? And I always answer in the same way. You know, first of all, define what growth is. Stop believing in reductionism. And, you know, take a constraints perspective instead. So let's look at the things that are preventing growth. And that's where these biases really play into it. So look, let's just go straight into it. Um, probably the biggest thing that I see um, is the stigma around marketing. So uh, I think, you know, non-marketers view marketers as a bit shady, like you say. So I think this really affects, you know, the confidence that some marketers have in themselves and um, the way they're treated by other departments really sort of plays into that. So um, I think we need to talk about that stigma first. And this creates the, the first major bias in in the industry okay so before we go into that let me just interrupt you and go back to one thing that you said earlier which is so instead of thinking about how can you grow more it's more in terms of thinking in terms of system like system thinking which is what is the biggest thing preventing you to grow more right if you consider your business to be a system and you talked about reductionism i've never heard of that before what does that mean Oh, so right. reductionism is like when you take something that's really complex, of which, you know, marketing is, especially if you're trying to tie it back to revenue. There's there's heaps of variables out there. It's a, a really complex uh, wheel that you need to, to be over. And uh, reductionism is when you're trying to take lots of different things and then simplify them into a, like a little model. And academics do this all the time uh, in, in university. They're trying to take this really complex beast and they go, okay, well, that's uh, because of, you know, X, Y, Z. They create a little model around that, you know, the seven steps to this, the, the four Ps or whatever, and they simplify it so everyone can understand it. But what's lost in that process is some of the complexity. 
And um, those are the little bits that are often the juicy bits that you really need to be over and will give the difference in, in your career in terms of being really effective at marketing. So I think it's important here to talk about the difference between complex and complicated, right? If I'm not mistaken, I'm going to butcher this, but something can be, can something be simple and complex or that can't be happening? Yeah, I mean, I think complex is like the number of variables that you're going to look at, yeah, right? Correct. Um, that will number of affect. Yeah. yeah, but then you can have simplicity within that, and that that is like maybe the way you approach that complexity is quite simple. So, yeah, look, I don't want to get tied up in semantics here, but um, I, I think you can have oh, a bit I do. of both. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's probably best to use a couple of examples. Um, and this is this is probably one of the things I want to talk about, which is disproportionality bias, which is um, where small little things can make a huge difference, um, especially when it comes to revenue. So um, you might have all the wheels of your marketing machine turning really well. And um, there's this one little thing that's preventing everything from working really well. Um, and yeah. I, I see it all the time. Maybe if, if your experience with like lead funnels and things like that, um, there could be this little technical glitch that's uh, that's you know causing fifty percent of your yield to like dissipate. So I suppose you know if you're not over all those little things um, in detail, then these little things can go missing and nobody notices them. Right, and I've heard about it in in a different, slightly different way, but different name, but different uh, same thing. Which is yeah, there's always one big thing that prevents you from going where you want to go or to growing faster, and you can do whatever you want on the other thing. As long as you don't remove this thing, it's, it's not going to happen. It's like retargeting for ads, for example. Most people, the major mistakes they make, the big mistake, yeah, that's the way That's the way I've heard about it, which is what is the biggest mistake you're making right now that prevents you from growing further? In marketing, to get to just a quick example, retargeting is usually where we see in paid marketing one of the biggest mistakes, which is retargeting everyone and, and anyone visiting the website. Yeah, yeah multiple times, over whatsoever. and over. Right, exactly. Yeah. So you're basically using so much money on like 90, 95% of people who don't give a shit. And instead you should focus, you should stop doing this mistake and focusing all of the money on those 5% who show some intent on your website, make them come back. So that's one example. And um, so you mentioned two already. So let's maybe go back to the first one you mentioned and yeah, tackle so, this one in so depth, like right? That. In terms of stigma, I think, um, especially like I do a lot of work in the tech field. I know you work for a tech company as well. So I think, um, you know, we need to address that one, which is the elephant in the room, um, which is, you know, Peter Thiel and the PayPal crew uh, back in the day were very dismissive of, of marketing as, as a discipline. The irony is he uh, he talks about, you know, the, the power of distribution, right? Which, you know, last time I learned marketing was one of the four Ps. Um, so I find that a touch ironic, but that sort of started this, this tech versus traditional versus digital sort of debate in the industry, right? And, um, you know, in tech companies, you'll probably notice it's, it's quite prevalent. Um, the engineers and the product people um, sort of view marketing with a bit of uncomfortable disdain, right? And um, I find that very interesting. And I think, you know, as tech grows, that's sort of becoming quite ingrained in the culture. And that whole Steve Jobs Apple story as well is really fascinating. So um, Steve Jobs has sent a lot of uh, misinformation around the tech community in Silicon Valley around the amount of uh, marketing that they were doing, especially research. And a lot of those stories came out in that court case. Um, I know this is mentioned a couple Against of times Samsung. before, but um, I think that that general sort of culture has um, of misinformation has really changed the narrative of, of around marketing, create the stigma. And then um, that creates sort of the bias of people viewing marketing and marketing's worth. So, you know, that creates a self-fulfilling loop within marketing 
They attract worse employees. The expectations are really high. Um, no one wants to work for these tech companies, even if they are good at marketing. So, you know, they attract worse and worse talent. So then it's this like uh, sort of loop that goes down and down and down. Just to, to go back to the example of Apple versus Samsung, which I think was the... Yes. So S Samsung, through whatever they were suing Apple for, won the case and they got access to the highest amount of market research anyone could have fucking fathomed. I think right? any company that... in the history of, of yeah. time has spent on, on market yeah. research. So, and, 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 and the bias, I mean, the bullshit there was that Steve Jobs was very good at making everyone believe that, no, they don't do market research. They're just fucking wing it. And they just are so innovative and so intuitively connected with their people that they just come up with stuff, which is far from being the truth. Like they did more market research than anyone else on the planet. And yet this, this kind of bias against marketing, thinking that it comes after the product and now we have a good product now what, how, how the fuck do we get customer is kind of <laughs> one of the reasons why like one of the the origin stories is because of that bias right like what apple what people think thought of apple was doing and you mentioned this loop so that's interesting so people consider marketing to be an afterthought or not that not that interesting not that important therefore less and less people are interested in joining well, who wants to join a company if like the management view marketing is like some sort of afterthought, you know what I mean? Like you don't really feel valued right. as an employee or if you're not respected or your discipline is respected. So um, then their expectations are really high. Then, you know, all well, the why, people... why are the expectations are high if they don't give a shit about marketing? Oh, well, they have high expectations about marketing. So like um, they don't want to get a shit marketer because um, obviously, um, you know, they, they're, they're looking for marketing to, to fill a hole of uh, of the department and yeah look that's that's sort of they look at marketing as filling the gap of demand gen basically right. um you okay. know we've got a revenue so, problem yeah. whatever problem we have marketing is going to solve that so you know this right. is a political thing as well and it happens in all departments um i'm not saying marketing is the only one but I, I see it quite a lot as the scapegoat for for misperformance and i think some people over rely on it and there's a lot of areas that you could work on as well Okay, so that's an interesting one, right? This loop, this 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 self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense of marketing being shitty because you make it shitty in a sense. I know firsthand about this this story that that tech companies talk about a lot, which is you know once once you build a, a good product, once you have an innovating product, then things then take care of themselves, and marketing is kind of just a way to put ads in front of people, and they don't <laughs> understand that marketing has. When done right, marketing has a seat on the table from the very start. Uh, the ability to really un understand people and their problem and the jobs they are hiring uh, stuff to do so that you can design the right product for them in conjunction with design, UX, product, engineers, and whatnot, right? So how do you, how do you fight this bias? How do you convince people? Because you probably have worked with and already are working with clients who yes. somewhat believe that. How do you fight that? Yeah, look, um, I mean, if, it, if it's in a tech context, um, generally you're dealing with sort of engineers or head of product um, or, you know, technical people like that. And um, one of the things that I use, it's, it's quite important, is um, there's this fallacy that, you know, technically good products sell themselves. And we know in marketing there's, there's heaps of failures. Um, you know, the tech companies themselves... <laughs> wash these failures under the rug where they're constantly iterating products. It's just part of the process. Products fail all the time. But there is this sort of fallacy that um, technically good products sell themselves. I would argue that it's more about products that are in congruence with the market's need that sell themselves to a certain extent. And even then, you still need to give them a leg up and get people to find out about them, right? 
So I think uh, one of the things that I use is that um, I ask the engineer, okay, um, well, if, if you think that's true about the product that we're talking about, okay, tell me about what your shirt's made out of. What what uh, fiber is it? What's the dye made out of? You know, what is the stitch or the weave on on the shirt that you're wearing? Uh, what is the brand? When was it started? And I ask all these questions and um, they can't answer any of them. And then I get them to admit to themselves that, well, they probably bought this brand because they saw, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, wear it on the weekend on a, on a blog or something. Or, and that's why they bought their Patagonia, um, you know, you know, shirt. I knew you would mention Patagonia. Yeah. That's <laughs> the obvious example, right? I mean, well, yeah. And, and, and it's, to, to, to go on, on top of what you said, an interesting thing to think about is that most products that people buy are out of wants, not needs, not primal needs. And so anything makes zero sense once you deconstruct them a bit. Why do you need to buy a $600 handbag? I mean, not me or you, but you know, my wife, for example. It's, it's not about functionality or anything. It's not even waterproof or anything like that like it, it's not functional it doesn't really make you you know it's all about status and it's all about feeling good about yourself and projecting this image that you can afford it and, and and you won't follow trends and once you deconstruct it this way nothing makes sense why do am i wearing a fucking t-shirt with birds on you know why are we why am i why, am I, why did i just buy this microphone which is <laughs> very high quality sound but the previous one i had was pretty good nothing to do with functionality it's all about status and and seeing joe rogan fucking having this one and feeling i need to have this one you so, know what i, I anyway. knew it looked familiar i knew it was joe rogan's one yeah it's not because i bought it it's not because of him it's because of the 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 tone of the voice that this microphone gives you which you know all of the ones i had before were too high pitch even though i don't have a necessarily high pitch voice and i was looking to find a radio voice microphone like something that gives you some sort of a anyway you see that's all about nothing to do with functionality or or human needs it's really a want anyway sorry to cut you but that's interesting so you you make them deconstruct features of a thing that they bought and make them realize that it's nothing to do with the features yeah i mean you know we could we could delve straight into like product and value strategy here if you really want to um where i sort of I say that products consist of layers, right? And there's um, emotional benefits, there's um, you know functional benefits, which is what everyone obsesses over, and self-expressive benefits. And then you've got costs on the other side as well. Everyone talks about costs as being price is the main one. Um, but there's also other costs like emotional costs as well, um, time costs that have to be factored in. So um, once I like deconstruct the product layers and show that all of these things contribute to the value perception, then they sort of understand it quite well. And then they really value okay. where marketing comes from. Um, but that's that's going so, really deep into strategy. So, but that's what we do here. So, to go back to the Patagonia T-shirt, let's say, let's say one of the engineer has a Patagonia T-shirt, and you deconstruct it. Uh, let's deconstruct it a bit with the layers, because to me, it proves that you need to be a good product person, like a good product manager, to understand those. But you don't necessarily need to be a marketer to design it that way or to think of time cost or opportunity cost or, or or emotional cost or or the benefit on the other side right so let's let's talk about patagonia like let's say i'm wearing a patagonia t-shirt how do you deconstruct it a bit yeah sure so um you know let's just take the example of uh, of a technical person or maybe a founder or an engineer um comes from a, a product or engineering background that um that buys the shirt unless they're really into textiles which i know a lot of guys aren't um i've had to learn it because i've had clients that are in that industry um so the stuff that i know is is pretty crazy, but um, let's just say that they're not aware of the the functional weave or the fiber. Even they just know it's polyester or it's um, or it's cotton, right? And then um, they know something about the brand because 
they have seen other people wear it in the tech space. So they feel that there's an emotional benefit of, in terms of uh, connecting with the, the Bay Area sort of community in, in a, as a whole. Um, so they identify themselves as wanting to be one of those persons. So we call it like a self-expressive benefit if you want to get technical. And then um, there's the emotional benefits on top of that. Maybe when they wear it, they feel more confident during the day. Um, maybe the brand themselves, Patagonia, obviously a very sustain, sustainable sort of brand and they give back. They're about... Um, slow fashion so repairing things so maybe that makes them feel good in terms of you know protecting their environment because that aligns with their values um maybe um you know they like the retro sort of colors and you know they're into 80s kind of colors i don't know um and yeah and look the functionality benefits are there as well you know it's warm it doesn't rip very easy there's quality factors around the make of the shirt so we're talking about sort of functional benefits there um and then you know, uh, when it comes down to costs as well, you know, maybe um, it's pretty hard to talk about that. But um, you know, they're pretty expensive if you've if you've ever bought one. So um, you know, that is a value perception within itself. Is that it's high price, and we know in marketing that there's a, a pretty high correlation between uh, value perceptions and, and price, uh, regardless of the quality of the product, uh, the actual quality of the product. So that all plays into the creating this perception in, in that person's mind that hey, uh, Patagonia is a good shirt, and I should buy it. So. So that makes sense. But to me, to, to play devil's advocate a bit, it still sounds like a product person who designed the t-shirts or, or, or whatever can, can think of all of those. How do you make the connection with marketing and reaching out to people and, and whatnot? How do you convince them that marketing has to be involved then and that they didn't buy it just for the product itself? Yeah, look, um, that's where sort of product placement comes in. So, you know, there's, there's no surprise that uh, all the tech people in Silicon Valley wear Patagonia and a photograph wearing Patagonia. And those photographs like find themselves into the blog posts and, and media insertions and things like that. Like that is no accident. And, you know, a brand sponsor uh, influences in that space uh, to be ambassadors. And then other friends or influential friends see that person wearing it, they'll buy it as well. So, you know, that's, that's all crafted by a marketer. And, um, you know, if we just talk about high fashion here as well, that, that is one of the core things that they do. It's all about connecting with, with other people who sort of um, embody that brand. And um, then other people notice that and, and they'll buy it as well. So, you know, that those things don't happen by accident. You know, we can talk about distribution and things like that as well. But if we're talking about fashion, that, that's one of the main things that, that you use to grow a brand. Yeah, so so people notice bad marketing pretty well, bad ads, and you know they, they are able to identify oh, that was shitty marketing, but they are very poor at identifying good marketing because it's invisible, right? It's like it just works. People talk about it, your friends wear it, and you think it's just word of mouth. But no, so, it's like a Tom uh, Fishburne quote. Is that what you're referring to? Where you know the best marketing doesn't feel like marketing? Uh, probably. Like I'm. I'm Copying everyone here. I'm not coming up with anything nice. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that quote. And and you're right. Like um, the best marketing, you won't even notice. It's like, and I think Apple's a good example of that. You know, the when people explain to you, oh, why do why do they buy an iPhone or why do they use Mac and, and not Android or some of the other competitors? They can't really explain it very well to you. They'll um they'll start rambling about oh, you know, it feels good or um I don't know, it just works and and it's all these like little emotional triggers. Um, you know, if you want to deconstruct that, we could be here all day. But um, you know, I just find it really interesting. They don't talk about functional benefits or, you know, it has three cameras, that's why I bought it. You know, they'll they'll talk about other things. And I think, I think they know, do. I think they do to challenge you. I think they do because they rationalize an irrational decision. Exactly. They have to fill the gap. They say to oh, it's better than Windows, lasts longer, it's it's you know, the OS is better. When in fact they only bought it to signal to others that they also have a Mac and they can afford it and, and you know, uh, they seek classiness and they're not just like a, a gamer and blah, blah. So 
just to go back to Debye, yes. I'm sorry to cut you. I keep cutting you, but it's it's very interesting. So I feel I need to contribute a bit. Do you have any other ways to to fight this first bias of of like everyone thinking that marketing is shady and shitty and ineffective? Yeah, look, I think it comes through, you know, people listening to this, um, where I go through some of these biases. And if we all get uh, become better marketers because of it, and, and we, we read up and um, we can explain the value that we provide um, really succinctly and clearly, and tie some of our actions back to, you know, business fundamentals, which is contributing to, you know, the bottom line, um, or reducing costs, for example, um, then I think, you know, you'll get a lot more respect within the board level. So I think it really starts at being better at what we do and, and better at articulating the value that we provide. And you said something at the start, I didn't want to challenge you on it too much, but we've been like 20 minutes talking and I think I can now. You said you actually specialize in a branch of marketing, which is like revenue generating. And it makes me think, what else then? Like if you're not contributing to revenue, what else are you supposed to do as a marketer? Yeah, well, look, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, um, there's a lot of marketing activity that goes on that isn't about um, generating uh, revenue. So um, well, directly, or- right? is dubiously connected to to creating revenue. So there's some things that um and this is this is a good bias. Let's let's talk about this actually. Um I mean this is one of the things I want to bring up which is um you know when you're planning your your marketing budget how do you spend it? And um, you'd probably know this this company called Gong.io, the, um, the sort of sales yes. automation software. Yeah, so um, really interesting study that they did uh, a little while ago. Um, and I heard this when I was learning marketing that a good salesperson um, speaks less and listens more in proportion to you know what most people think salespeople do, which is just talk and yabber and the gift of the gab. You know, some people say 70-30, some people say 50-50. Um, but the point is you should be probably listing more than you are talking. Yet when it comes to everyone's uh, marketing campaign, they spend the, the vast proportion of their budget on marketing communications, really expensive ads, you know, what I would call talk. And they spend a very residual amount, if, if anything, on research. And half the time that research expenditure comes out of the agency's fees anyway. And that, that research that they do is just sort of confirmation bias, right? Trying to prove the decisions that have already been made by their strategists. Um, so I find that very interesting. If we really want to sell things, why are we spending so much on talking? Yeah, why? It's funny. There's a lot of biases against research, right? There is a lot of, uh, the, like the one that I hear the most that pisses me off the most is the fact that it's this, uh, Henry Ford quote, you know, if, if we were asking people, uh, what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses. And that drives me nuts because point on research is never to ask what do you think we should be doing what solutions should we build because people will always ask more you know they would ask for better faster cheaper the key of research is to understand their pain the jobs they're hiring the product to do the alternative they're using what did they do recently and that's it your job as a marketer is to do the emotional labor of you know um, joining the dots between what they're saying and what you can offer right do you agree with me or, or i mean that's a very uh biased yeah, no, question sure. I mean, I think, you know, in, in a lot of these sort of famous quotes, there's an element of truth in that. Um, and that is, um, and I was reading this really interesting book by um, Adam Ferrier um, about this. Like he says, stop listening to the customer, like hear them instead. And I think, you know, customers, and this is where one of the this biases come in really, which is called response bias in market research, where um, sometimes the, the responses people give you aren't really the things that you should listen to. So people, you know, a classic examples like a restaurant, um, you sat down, um, you've had a terrible meal, right? You're with your significant 
significant other. Um, and out of just the cultural politeness, um, when the restaurateur or owner comes up to the table and goes, oh, how was the meal? You go, oh, yeah, it was great, you know, with this kind of weak smile. You don't say, oh, it was fucking terrible. I'm never coming back here again. You just, you know, pay your money and, and walk away. So, you know, that's a really explicit form of, of response bias. But this creeps into a lot of market research where, you know, and we could go on examples about this all day, like New Coke is, a, is another example. Sometimes they're asking the wrong question. And um, you need to use a different sources of market research because they all have their strengths and weaknesses um, to find out what's really going on with the customers sometimes. So, you know, it's not just ask them what they want. Um, sometimes you should ask them, okay, well, if we gave that to you, would you buy it or would you switch brands for it? You know, that's a better question to ask. Um, so, yeah, that just comes down to market research. Well, one other thing that I found interesting is, is looking at behavior and then trying to do the emotional labor of understanding why this behavior happens, right? So online, you can, you can, you can see how people behave anonymously nowadays, but you can also do that in real life. I mean, mystery shopping and, and like poor man's ethnography, as Mark Ritson would call it, is super effective. Like just going, if you, if you, if your client is a retailer, then, then go inside the fucking shop and look at how people actually behave. And you'll understand that people don't read the label uh, from start to finish and look at every and compare every single fucking thing. No, out of habits, most of the time, just pick one and go. Like, and trying to understand, trying to link this behavior, this actual behavior with, with, with what you described a few minutes ago about the benefits, functional, emotional, uh, the self-expressive uh, benefit, the cost and all of that. It's kind of the work we have to do as marketer to be more effective. Yeah, look, it's not an easy job. And I think, you know, um, this comes down to this sort of reductionism thing that I mentioned before. Like, um, you know, it's a really complex environment. Um, if customers told you the truth about what they wanted and, and you know, how much they're willing to pay and that kind of thing, it would make it so much easier just to, you know, just go out and ask your customer. But they, they tell you lies all the time. So, you know, that's why I was, I think it's a good point. Um, you know, the tech community as well and people get obsessed with like um being data driven and i always ask them you know what kind of data and uh, these people can't really understand or explain to you what kind of data they just go well you know data from our programs online and i'm like well what about all the other types of data like secondary data marketing journals that have already been written and published um observational data um like you just mentioned going to a shop it's that's observational research um you know you need to use all the different data points to get a really good uh, comprehensive view of, of what's actually going on and i think sometimes um you know we get into this sort of measurement bias which is um we measure the things that are the most easy to measure and we ignore the things that are hardest to measure and sometimes in my experience as well when it comes to revenue those are the things you, you should be spending more time trying to measure you know i'm not saying that they're easy and i think this is where sort of brand gets lost in this um this tech industry as well um and it's coming back full circle i was just talking to, to robin daniels the other day um ex WeWork cmo he's seeing that and i asked him this question and he's like yeah look in the tech community it's all being focused on you know demand gen and um sales activation um and it's really coming back and back into brand you know what's the story and i think that's synonymous with just um when industries become more competitive um you know you need to go move more away from just transactional and functional benefits with your product and you need to wrap a story around it and all these other layers and emotional benefits on top that i was just talking about before with the case of you know that patagonia brand so um that's definitely happening in the tech community and i think you know maybe the tide is turning a bit as the industry becomes more competitive so maybe we'll, we'll we'll see some more respect come into into the marketing discipline and so give me an example of um 
of something that is important to measure yet hard to measure so most people miss it like in the marketing sector yeah sure you? look there's 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 a guy in silicon valley actually called chris walker he does a lot of demand gen work and um he's been talking about this a lot and i, I really like the way he phrases this um but i've noticed the exact same thing so let's just take the concept of um you know we're working for a tech company we're trying to get more leads um and and close them right and i think one of the mistakes people made is that they they view sales like a funnel and we all do this because we hear about sales funnels and we learn it at school and um, you know what goes into the top um, filters down and each layer we sort of get down to the bottom where we close the sale and you know that's the revenue and so the mistake people make is they go okay look um, well we just need to put more into the top um, so they go okay more leads more leads more leads um, and that will increase their ratio at the bottom what they miss sometimes in that is that there's a disproportionate amount of um, leads that contribute to the bulk of your revenue down the bottom. Um, so it's not the same. So, and often that's because there's a certain segment of the the target audience that you're, that you're targeting that um, is more receptive to your brand. And um, maybe you've got other clients that are in similar industries and can show sort of social proof and case studies that, you know, your product really does a good job in those industries. And, um, you know, that segment is converting at this like crazy high rate and contributing to like 80% of revenue. Um, so, if you don't go full funnel and look at all the way down to, to the bottom, um, you're going to miss that. And um, I think that's a mistake a lot of companies make at, at all levels. You know, just coming back to, let's go back to B2C, which is, you know, Byron Sharp does a lot of work in this space and he talks about um, light and heavy buyers and the same sort of proportionality comes into, into that argument as well. So you should really look at that research as well because he says that, you know, you get most of your market share from the people who buy the least from you and the least often. And so if you want to grow a really big brand, um, you need to focus on those light buyers rather than what they teach you sometimes at marketing school, which is get a segment and that's going to be this 80-20 rule. You know, 20% of your customers will give you 80% of the profit. And um, Byron Sharp actually proved that wrong. So it's just, it's very interesting, this proportionality problem that sort of affects metrics and measurement in, in marketing. So let's let's take a moment to 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 tell you listening to this episode right now to to, to pause it and buy uh, the two books called uh, How Brands Grow and How Brands Grow Part 2, uh, which are basically a summary of Byron Sharp and, and his colleagues on, on marketing as a science. And exactly as you said, it's a phenomenal book because it's proving a lot of like things that we've been taught in, in, in school. And for those who didn't follow a, ma a tr proper, a traditional marketing training that you've probably have heard around, which is exactly as you said, there's no Pareto law when it comes to profit and customer. The max that they've seen across industries, companies, countries, uh, and whatnot is 20% of the buyer responsible for 60% of the, of the mm. revenue or the profit. I don't remember which one exactly. And that the light buyers, so that are the ones that don't buy that often are in uh, uh, responsible for a huge portion of your of your huge. of your traffic of your revenue, and he's making the point, therefore, that you shouldn't only focus on your heavy buyers because those people would buy anyway. Like mm -hmm. that, you you can't really squeeze more out of them, and instead, you should focus on market penetration and trying to reach as many people who are category buyers as possible, even though they've probably bought just once or twice in the last five years, right? Yeah, yeah, big time. I think it's um really important. I mean, um, one of the things I do, and coming back to your initial question of like, how do we improve this um this stigma, right? Um, and I think it comes down to using sources like that of um scientific peer reviewed articles. Um, that if you argue against that, it, you're basically like proving yourself like wrong. Um, and the problem with that, uh, and I've done this before, um, is that some of the 
I don't want to be ageist here, but let's just say um, some more experienced marketers who have been in the career for, for a lot longer. Very well put. Um, very well this, put. These findings are quite confronting to their belief systems, and they'll be very antagonistic if you present this new theory because they've learned the old way and those two things don't mix. So you need to be really careful how you present this. Um, so I just go, look, this is the way it used to be done, and this is some, some new studies that were done, and it shows you know, X, Y, Z. If we want to do this, then I think we should at least read this study and, and heed some of the, the outcomes from the study. So that's the way that I present it. Um, but that doesn't always wash. Sometimes there's just people that are just too set in their ways and then they just don't want to hear it. Um, you know, they're 10 yep. years or five years away from their, their 401k or, you know, their um, annuity uh, pension to, to mature. And they just want the lowest risk thing and just ride the tide out until until they go. So, you know, growth isn't, isn't an option for a lot of companies. You know, if, if I see that at the top, I, I just walk away. Which is why most companies fail to innovate and stand out and to differentiate because they can't take risks, they can't afford to take risks. To go mm. back to one thing you mentioned, like briefly, uh, what you mentioned about it's very, it's actually almost impossible to convince people with belief that are so anchored into their, into their identity otherwise. And so this is also why it's been argued in marketing that you shouldn't really waste your money. Uh, Richard Shorten, the one of the behavioral scientists talking about uh, marketing a lot recently, makes this point. You shouldn't really focus too much on those people who don't necessarily believe in what you believe in because they'll be hard-bent in, into their own way. Uh, the only way to convince people who are completely against you uh, he he argues is to use subtle cues so you don't go head to head. He's mentioning this airline, I think Southwest Airlines or maybe another one, um, maybe not Southwest. They were perceived to be very um, cheap and cheaty and poor service. And instead of going at it heads on saying, hey, we're better service, we're, we're good, they use in their commercial classical music that are associated with quality and refinement yep. and whatever. Yep. And over years of doing that, perception started to change. So it takes years as well. So I'm not surprised that you couldn't convince them. It's almost impossible, yeah. right? And look, to, to get a bit geeky on you, behavioral science again, um, and this comes into sales and, and marketing quite a lot, um, and especially affects B2B. Um, I had this conversation just today with someone who um, wanted me to set up some demand gen you know, operational system for them. And um, uh, I was like, okay, well, who do you want to target? And he's like, oh, look, um, you know, we can't go with the people who have already chosen a competitor because of the sunk cost that's gone into that and everyone's bought into it and um, they're not going to switch when it comes to software. And he's like, we find we get the most customers from the people who are just switching from like a non-cloud system to a cloud system, which, you know, this product was. Um, and he's like, we'll close those like, you know, 50% of the time versus the other guys just maybe 1%. So, you know, the whole strategy shifts to those people. And, um, you know, coming back to what you said about the belief systems, it's because there's this sunk cost of mental energy, time, reinforcement over a long period of time. Um, that has reinforced this belief. It's like, you know, behavioral conditioning. And, um, you know, they're not going to let go because it's just such a big cost. And um, we use this actually to our advantage. Um, I, I can't name the companies, but there's a very big uh, CRM or automation company out there um, that starts with an H. And um, they use this in the sales process. So they purposely waste the prospect's time over a long period of you know, multiple onboarding calls, you know, over a period of weeks. And, you know, they can implement this thing within like an hour, but they drag it out as long as they can because they know that you know, if I've invested all my time up to that point, I'm not going to like chicken out the last minute. I'm going to go through with the deal no matter how expensive it is. So um, I think the same thing plays here with with our belief systems, this this um, sunk cost fallacy, they call it. Um, and it's really powerful if you use it in sales, especially in a B2B context. There's another very big company that starts with O that uses this in their enterprise sales as well. So, you know, sometimes intentionally causing 
friction in the sales process actually contributes to more revenue and more sales, which is very contrary. If, you, if you've ever talked to a product team, they're always about like getting rid of customer friction. You know, no, 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 we want it to be as painless as possible. And um, that's just often not the case. Yeah, and, and that's a fantastic example to prove that adding friction, as you said, can add value very much like uh, having a huge queue in front of a, of a discotheque would make you believe that it's more valuable inside as well. So there's social yes. proof, but there's also the, the commitment of time, which, which bring, builds value, right? Which is, you know, the more time I'm spending, the more engaged I am, the less likely I am to leave the queue. Very much like when you're in a shitty relationship and the last two, the last two years have been held, but you've been <laughs> together for 25 years, very, very uh, way, way less likely to quit because yep. the sunk cost fallacy is there. But it doesn't matter, actually, that you've invested all of this time. This time is gone. So you should think about the time right now, not the time yeah, that look, you and, invested. And I learned this actually playing poker and and meeting other entrepreneurs. And um, entrepreneurs are really ruthless like when it comes to this sunk cost because they know people use it against them. So you know they may have dropped you know, 100K, 200K or millions into a company and they will have that discipline to just drop it and walk away and go, no, this isn't working, rather than you know, okay, let's sink more money into this. Let's, you know, what's the problem here? Let's get some more marketing dollars. And the same thing happens with poker hands. Um, I play Texas Hold'em, right? Like um, if you start bluffing and you get to that point where you can't carry on with the bluff, you know, sometimes the best option is just to fold and, and walk away with your loss. Um, so, you know, that's where I learned that um, anecdotally anyway. Poker is actually a very good school of life in general. I, I, I listened to this webinar recently of, I'm going to, not to remember the, the name as always, but she talked, she made a point about poker being a, a really good school of life. Uh, and I'm going to have to pick up the note here. Bear with me one sec, because that was super interesting. Well, so I think poker, gonna... like, and just what you're finding that um, poker to me is a game of perception. Like they always say, don't play your hand, play the other person's hand. And it is true. Like mm. um, it's all about sales and bluffing somebody else and convincing them that you have a better hand and then they should back away and, and vice versa. So you know, that's where marketing perceptions uh, are so, so valuable. So she's making the point, it's the book called Is the, the Biggest Bluff. She's making the point, it's not, not directly corrected, but it made me think of it. it. She says, the only person that actually knows the card is you. No one else can see them and they only know what you're projecting, which is the same in marketing. Uh, the only person the only com that knows that has a card are, is your company unless you externalize them, you know, they won't, people won't know. And she also made a very interesting point. The only people who don't lie to themselves and to others are the ones who are clinically depressed. And she's making the point that everyone else makes like lies all the time, little white lies. And it goes back to, to your research. Uh, it's Yeah, it's fantastic allegory altogether. I need to read the book, but I, I found that interesting anyway. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, you raise a good point there about, um, you know, I do a lot of work in ivory tower syndrome. So, you know, when you work with a lot of big brands um, in ivory tower syndrome is when um, you're so enamored and in your own institution that you sort of lose perspective about maybe how other people view you, you know, in reality. Um, so, you know, you're at the top of your tower and you're looking down at your little customers down below and you're working as a, as a senior brand manager. And, you know, I, I find the best companies to prevent this like problem with perception and getting too caught up in your own little bubble is that um, they force um, senior executives to work, you know, a week at the, at the bottom floor of the shop. So, you know, there's a supermarket here in, in Australia that does that. Um, so every single employee from CEO, executives, GMs, they have to do a week, you know, beeping people's um, shopping through the, the till and saying hello. So, you know, at any one time you could be getting served by like the CEO of, of this, you know, multi-billion dollar supermarket chain. I think, you know, other companies do the same kind of thing to prevent this this ivory tower bias. And um, this especially affects marketing teams um, where they, once they, 
I think the further away they are from the customer, uh, they become detached and they make really bad decisions because they um, get on their high horse and they're talking about you know, brand purpose and all this kind of thing. And that's where a lot of this marketing BS comes from. It comes from this detachment from the roots, the nitty gritty frontline uh, things that every marketer should be doing. And look, even in tech, this happens. Um, you know, you're, you're hide behind your digital analytics program and oh, look at my little users tracking between here and here. And you're like, dude, just uh, get the phone and call one of them and go, hey, um, you know, how was your experience? And do that like every day. And if you do that, you'll become way better at your job because there's a lot of stuff that you won't see without asking the question. A good, a very good question, simple question to understand how good a marketer is or, or how much they are willing to change themselves is when was the last time you talked to a customer? Uh, yeah. And usually that question, I, I like to ask that in conferences, on events. I don't go to them anymore, I mean, obviously with the situation right now, but even before, because I couldn't handle it. But it's it's a very telling. And another another part of this is, is statistical numbing, right? Very much like in a charity setting, when you ask for donations, it's much easier to focus on one person telling their story and their suffering and pain and to make people donate instead of saying 10,000 people died from hunger every day, because numbers don't mean shit for people. And so... It's the same for Google Analytics. You know, when people look at numbers all day in Excel and Google Analytics and Adobe Analytics and Tableau and whatever, <laughs> they completely, I would argue, they don't think my users, they completely forget those are real people behind the screens, right? They do. And they it's do. to a point where, you know, they're gone. Yeah, I mean, you know, they use the term users. I mean, I'd be I'd be saying humans, you know, or customers, uh, customers to the website. I wouldn't use the word users. And then they start, you know, talking to the customer as a user. I mean, it's very, um, it's very galling. It's like, you know, talking to you and uh, me calling you human, for example. Um, you'd be like, that's that's really strange. Yeah, look, uh, I think that comes from maybe people who are a bit afraid of, of talking to customers. And, and I think because, you know, I've worked in sales and obviously maybe you have as well. And you've talked to people and had small talk. Maybe you've done a retail job or worked at a bar or whatever. Um, you you don't have that problem talking to complete strangers. Um, but I think, you know, if you're stuck behind a computer screen all day and you've never done that before, I think you will immediately have your own bias of like not wanting to cross that threshold because you're afraid of a customer. And look, I was. I, I At university, one of my first jobs was, um, I was working for a market research firm, right? And um, I had to call up at maybe 5 to 7 p.m. So we had this like two to three hour window um, where everyone would be home and we'd call their landline phone. And this is back in the day where people actually had landlines. And um, they had already opted into the market research database to be called about studies, right? But of course, half of them would forget. So I call them going, look, it's you know, John here from you know, XYZ company. Um, we're calling you because you're on our database you know, to, to give questions for market research purposes. And like half of them would like swear at my face, right? Or hang up straight away. And um, you know, the first day I did it, I was like, what the, what the you know, F? Like these people have opted in. Like, you know, what's wrong with them? But they just don't remember. Um, so... You know, I think that really um, made me a better person. And then doing outbound sales, I think, is is one of the most character building things you'll ever do as a marketer. And, and um, you know, I know you might ask me some questions at the end of this, this podcast uh, on that vein. I'm going to answer like sales is one of the best things any marketer can do, um, you know, whether it's a retail assistant clerk or, you know, outbound sales, telesales, whatever. You've got to do that um, because I think as marketers, we can get detached from the end result from all our activity, which is fucking you know, a commercial outcome, you need to get someone to buy. And um, there's no point building a brand if that brand doesn't lead to a purchase. There's absolutely zero commercial value. And I think coming back to some of the stigmas that we need to get rid of, I mean, that's why it's so important to, you know, maybe you, you don't measure it exactly, but you have a hypothesis and you've you got some metrics around it and you can take that business case to some someone up the chain and go, hey, you know, look, it's not perfect, but 
these investments in, in this podcast, for example, um, they've been mentioned five times by customers when they've inquired with us. You know, I think it has, you know, X, Y, Z value. And and look, you know, a, a manager is going to go, okay, that's actually pretty good. Um, you know, we should continue doing that versus the opposite conversation where you come and go, oh, well, it's the brand, you know. Well, of course you should invest in the brand. You know, haven't you read, you know, some advertising book by Olga V or, you know, whoever? Um, so that's a much weaker argument to, to have. So I suppose a lot of the job that I do is tying this measurement back to, to revenue. So to go back to, to, to research and you're afraid of talking to customers, there's two things to think about. One is you're actually helping them out. It's like a mindset shift. You're not annoying them. If you're not selling them anything, actually you're making their life better because they have someone to talk to for the next 20 minutes. People pay $100, an hour to talk to a psychiatrist or psychologist. <laughs> Genuinely, if you ask them the right question, that's how it feels like, you know, they, yeah. they feel... Yeah, and even they, if they're angry, they I mean, on retention calls, you know, if you call them, um, and this happened, this GM of this big bank in, in Australia um, called unhappy customers and, and then all the other GMs started doing it as well, like one per day, every day. And they ended up creating advocates out of these people who are really pissed off and like going to sue them. And they turned them all the way around into like an advocate of the bank's brand. So like you can take a shitty situation and make it better really easily as well. And the, and I'm going to forget the second um the second uh, recommendation to actually talk to customers. But I think what you said about sales is, is better. I'm not going to remember it now. I'm sure I remember in the next few minutes. Okay, so you talked about linking, making a business case for for the, you know, let's say a podcast. Okay, we don't know for sure how many clients it brought, but we know for sure it brought five, for example, making a business case for that. Like, is that the approach you use to prove or to try to, to prove hypothesis when you're do thing, doing things that are not directly related, uh, related to, to revenue that you can't directly track back? Or do you have another, another method? Uh, look, I, I go pretty deep on this. Um, like I, I mix um, sales activation with with brand. So the two sort of separate metrics uh, or, or bags of metrics. And um, we need to be tracking both and investing in both um, at all levels. And I think there's a bit of a fallacy that when you're a small business, um, you should invest in brand. But you will vicariously do that because, you know, you are the brand. Um, you are the reputation of the business uh, early on. So you are already investing in brand. Um, and I think, you know, as the company gets bigger, that's just the concept of brand changes. Um, so I don't buy into Peter Thiel's don't invest until you've got 50 million, you know, recurring revenue a year. Um, don't invest in brand at all. I think that's completely false. So look, uh, without getting into the nitty gritty, um, there are very complex mathematical models that I use to, to do these calculations. Um, some things are very much easier to, to prove than others. Um, but I think, you know, um, even accountants at a very high level will understand the value of brand and, and the need for it. Um, they just don't know how to measure it properly. So I don't think you get much pushback on that. Um, um, but if you're investing a lot, like the bulky money in that, and not in other activities, which are which are easy to 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 prove, um, then you know you're going to get in trouble. So, um, and I think this comes back to um, one of the biases that I see a lot as well, which is um, you know investing in outcomes in uh, and other uh, marketing departments uh, getting really tied up with outputs. And I think you know. I focus on the outcome and I don't really ha care how you get there. A lot of other departments are, are focused on, you know, getting another blog post out, getting another ad made, um, this sort of output churn, this the, this machine. And um, they don't really stop to think sometimes like, well, what is it actually doing? Is that affecting the commercial outcomes of the business or not? And that's why I work more of an outcome approach and, and work back up the chain to, to some of the activities that we could be doing. 
I'm a bit annoyed because you mentioned something very interesting, and I know that we won't have time to go into in depth. Uh, you talked about complex mathematical models, and that makes me interesting, interested straight away. You mentioned two things. So the difference between sales activation and brand building, which are the two activities, like sales activation is more short term. You can directly link what you're doing or quite easily link what you're doing with with revenue, like typical stuff would be paid paid advertising, like AdWords, stuff like that, Facebook retargeting, social media ads, stuff like that, right? But brand building would be much more, you know, you know, be on podcasts or CEO being on podcasts or, or just lead, genuinely thinking of the touch points of your journey, making sure that every single thing, contact with your customer is, is fucking awesome. That yeah. is much more difficult to to measure, but there are ways to do so without you going too much in depth and talking to me about uh, your secret uh, black box. If you had to simplify that in the next three minutes on sure. roughly I've got a how to example. It. Happened last week. Go ahead. Uh, we were doing, uh, okay, a tech company again, but that's not all the clients that I have. It's very service industry focused. Um, we were mostly investing at this stage in this company on, um, you know, search and social as like lead generation for, for this SaaS company, right? And um, that was going really well, um, getting lots of demand. Um, so I had my baseline measurements and hadn't changed things in a month. And then um, I'm like, look, we really need to probably invest in some brand here. Like, so the soft sell approach, um, we need to support those actions with other touch points along the journey just to, you know, because the theory is that, you know, a person doesn't get sold just on one interaction. Normally, it sort of takes a period of time and multiple interactions with different people, departments, ads, whatever. Um, so we're like, okay, let's let's do some YouTube um, ads on you know this sector that they operate in and um, just see. No call to action, no link, nothing. And of course, I'm already uh, tracking all the brand searches to the website, right? So, you know, in this case, the, the company is called XYZ, let's just say. And I was already tracking that on a line okay. graph every single day. As soon as we started the YouTube uh, campaign, the, the metric baseline went up like 20% on all the other channels like so that's a really clear way and and that was that exact date and then i shut it off and and it stopped again and it went back down slowly back down to the level so you know that's called exclusion testing and i use that a lot when we're trying to figure out okay is that channel investment actually doing anything or not so i'll turn it on and off for for a you know significant amount of time and, and check the um how it affects the other things so if you want to sort of know what that's about it's um a branch of mathematics, but um, probably shouldn't go into that detail right now. Yeah, but that's interesting. And, and the key word here, I believe, is baseline, right? So yes. to measure brand, you need a baseline of how many inquiries you have roughly per week or per month or whatever. A good way to do it as well, as has been mentioned on the podcast before, is, for example, if you do TV ads, you do TV ads on specific states in the US and you don't do any in the other, like roughly same population or whatever. And then you compare brand search, like number of people searching for you uh, in those states and see whether... There is a difference, right? And that's another way to test it. But that's super interesting because that really starts to give you some, you can actually model out the channel independently of the other and say, well, roughly TV will bring X number more. Have you done that before as well, comparing like two, two markets where you don't expose one to the other, to, to ads, yeah, for example? Yeah, big time. I mean, uh, that's just like sort of another form of that sort of testing or A-B testing. Um, so yeah, and, and that's coming back to biases. Like, you know, like maybe I, I think I know, I come from a TV background, and I know that TV is powerful, but I've never actually measured it before. Um, and once you start doing that, it's, it really changes the conversation. Um, so yeah, look, um, th some of the big brands can do this, but I think at a smaller level, it's really hard to do some of that because you don't have the budget, you don't have the expertise, um, you can't turn things on and off. You don't have that luxury. So I'm not saying that this is an easy thing to do, but um, you know, you can do small little tests, um, have a hypothesis, prove it, and then go, okay, we should do a bigger test and and go from there. I think that's a really smart way of of doing that if, if you're having that 
exact issue at, at your workplace? There are ways like Twitter ads at the minute, just we're recording this episode in 2020, maybe next year it's not going to be whatever. But Twitter ads, for example, are quite cheap at the minute. And there's ways to, to test brands this way by exposing your message to so many people and looking just at Google Search Console or, or, or um or the ways to know how many people actually search for your brand name. And so it's not, you don't need millions to, to no. test it. You, you sometimes need $500 and, and you can actually start seeing a difference. Yeah, I mean, Google Search Console is actually, look, it's not the most robust uh, form, but if you've got a big enough sample, it's it's pretty accurate. Um, I know yeah. I have a, a maid in finance who works for a big investment bank and he uses that um, as a predictor for the one of the companies that he, he um, covers uh, in terms of their valuation uh, when they go into new markets. So they use that metric and it pretty much exactly correlates with with their revenue figures in, in that country. So, um, you know, I've, I've talked to him at length about his model there and, and I talked to other people about these things. And yeah, you don't need expensive of, you know, brand listing tool for like a thousands of dollars a month. It's, it's a free tool. John, you've been a pleasure. Thanks for deconstructing all of those biases. I have a few questions for you before you go, but yeah, it's been sure. pretty in-depth. I didn't see the hour go, which is a good sign. So what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next uh, 5, 10, 10, 20, 50 years? And you already talked about it, but maybe you have a different answer. Yeah, look, um, I think, you know, sales and and copywriting is, is a big thing um, because you know how to articulate yourself and sell something. But uh, um, let's just talk, uh, contextualize it around maybe, you know, some technology that's happening now that will get bigger in the next little while. And I think um, um, I'm working with a, a client that does 3D modeling in the world of AR. And I know Apple's bringing out uh, augmented reality glasses um, very soon. It's a, the, probably the worst kept secret. So that's going to be the next big device. Um, the world is going AR with a lot of um, advertising technology and the way we interact with brands and products. Um, and to run AR, you need to have 3D models of a product. So I think if you get any skills around um, virtualizing products in, in you know high detail, um, even using gaming engines and things like that, and you can combine that with AR, and, and that will be the new breed of, of marketing channels that's going to be out there. So um, I would definitely get onto to that sort of bandwagon if, if you can, because we're really crossing that threshold of um, hardware and and uh, the capabilities of the hardware to do that properly uh, in a valuable way for customers. Interesting. Makes me think a lot about but yeah, what we're going to do. It's going to be an interesting few years. Uh, what are the top three resources you'd recommend listeners today? Yeah, look, um, I, I suppose I got onto Brian Balfour. Um, he um, really changed my perspective and galvanized some of the things that I thought were true. Um, and he's got a free blog uh, online. So um, I think it's brianbalfour.com. And he runs this education course called Reforge. Um, I've never done any of their courses. I've never actually met Brian, but I really gel with the way he looks at things. You know, he has some shortcomings as well, which I won't go into, but um, really good resource. I knew mentioned Byron Sharp. I think he's one of the better academics out there. But there's another one called, um, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Cohen Pools or something. I think he has a website. He just changed the domain. So I'll tell you what it is, but I think it's like marketingscience.com or something like that. And he is another academic that does some really good stuff that isn't paid by um, certain interests in or lobby groups in the industry. So some of his research is really interesting around this exact thing we're talking about, about exclusion testing and tying it back to revenue. He's done some really good work there. So that would be my three that maybe other people have mentioned. Great. Yeah. I, I had the pleasure to talk to Brian. He does have shortcomings. He's a very smart guy, but I think he's too obsessed with product, not enough about marketing itself. But yeah. um, that's another... And no brand either. Discussion. So there's no mention of brand, which is, yeah. is a bit weird, isn't it? You mentioned it's a bit as a growth loop, but it's it's kind of drowning in all of the other growth loops, which yeah. I don't think they're all equal. Brand as a growth loop is like phenomenally, like it's phenomenal against all of the other, purely because it resists anything. Like Volkswagen 
resisted the worst crisis in their fucking history thanks to their brand like it just it yeah. just works anyway exactly. john you've been a pleasure thank you so yeah, much for spending much. time and and talking about all of those stuff that most people don't and and i'm gonna upgrade about. my microphone now so you've convinced me i'm gonna go on the brand bag wagon <laughs> and uh succumb to my own biases and then buy a better microphone because i think you've outdone me <laughs> awesome all right john uh talk to you soon cheers thanks very much That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.